Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. This year, the whole year, we've been taking this theme of teach, live, learn, and we've been taking the first Sunday of every month just to preach through our doctrinal statement. Um, The elders last year said, hey, like, it's one of those things where every church has a doctrinal statement, but no one ever really thinks about it or looks at it unless you're like, hey, what's this church all about? And you're looking on the website, right? And, And so we wanted to take the first Sundays and just preach through and say, this is why, and this is who we are. This is like, This is why we believe what we believe. So we've been taking, we've looked at who God is, who Jesus is, the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, different things. And this week, um, we're going to take part two. So last month on the first Sunday, Pastor John took part one of the church, and he just walked through Acts chapter four. um, And while he was doing that, he was paralleling that with our doctrinal statement of what we say the church is all about. And so I'd encourage you, if if you've been here for any amount of time, sometimes it's just a good refresher for those of us that have been here a long time, to say, all right, I've, I've committed to be a member of Upper Park Community Church, um, which means that I say I believe in certain things. Now, we believe as a church that our doctrinal statement is aligned with the Word of God. So it's a great refresher just to go back every once in a while. And that's my hopes this morning, um, that you were able to just kind of refresh on what is the church? Okay, what is it all about? So today we're going to uh, take a little different approach, and we're going to do one of observation. So we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, a little letter in the New Testament towards the back of the scriptures, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're just going to observe a specific church this morning, the church at Thessalonica, and just see what, what, what did this church do well, and what can we take away from their example this morning? Now, if you think about the New Testament, so you have the four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After the four Gospels, if you were to hold up your Bible and just kind of stop it there and go to the end of Scriptures, the rest of the New Testament is church-focused. So you start with Acts, okay? Acts is a historical look at what happened to the early church and how it was developed. After Acts, you have Romans, which in a lot of ways is like a theological manifesto for the early church. Like, what do we believe? Christ has just left earth. How do we carry this forward and keep it pure? And that's what the book of Romans is. And then you start with 1 Corinthians all the way through till you get to Revelation, and it's letters to either church leaders or specific groups of people like us sitting here this morning, okay, back in that time, if we were early believers, we at certain times would have got letters that were very important. They would have come on the roads. We would have stood up on a Sunday morning and said, this morning we received a letter from Paul or some other church leader, and today we're going to read it for us. These are important things that we're going to carry forward. And so it's amazing how much of that is still relevant today. Then even you get to the Revelation, and uh, even though it's a vision by John, the church still plays a major part of that vision with the different churches represented in the book of Revelation. So just a little bit of background, and then we'll jump into the text. Paul writes this on his second missionary journey. So he writes this letter, okay? We always use the term book. This is a letter to the church at Thessalonica, and he's writing it from Corinth, Um, around 49 to 51 AD, which is about 20 years after Christ's crucifixion and then ascension. So we're about 20 years separated from Christ 
crucifixion and ascension. And Paul is writing this letter on his second missionary journey. And what he's doing is he's looking back to his first missionary journey. You ever go on a trip, you take pictures and you look back and you remember, man, that was a great trip to Hawaii. Man, that was a great trip to uh, the hills of West Virginia. You know, wherever you go, every once in a while, isn't it nice to go back and just reflect on, wow, that was a really good family time. Man, remember the views at the Grand Canyon, how amazing that was? Well, in a lot of ways, that's what Paul is doing here, is he would go, up, go somewhere, leave, move on to the next place, but then he would stop and take time because he was a great leader, and he would write letters back to say, hey, remember what happened when I was there? Remember what the gospel did to transform lives? And so that's what we have going on here. And so I want to start, um, it's 10 verses. I actually want to start in verse 8 this morning. And uh, just follow along with me as I read. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And then this is the phrase I want to focus in. So that we need not say what? Anything. So that we don't need to even say anything. Here we see that Paul is paying this church an amazing compliment. And he's going to do this throughout this whole book. He's just going to compliment after compliment after compliment. Now, how many of you love a good compliment? All right? Everybody, raise your hand. Tommy, raise your hand, okay? Everyone loves a good compliment, okay? We all love compliments. Now, what makes a good compliment, though, okay? First of all, who says it, right? Some people, like, they pay you a compliment, and you're like, you don't mean it. You're just trying to get something, right? Okay? The person that says the compliment is vital to understanding who it is. And the second thing that's important is how it's said, the context, okay? So who is saying this compliment? Paul. Okay, everybody say Paul. Paul is saying the compliment, okay? Think about getting a compliment from Paul. Now tonight, okay, uh, there's a football game between Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Okay, argument of who's the greatest quarterback of all time, and these two guys, okay, are in the conversation for the greatest quarterback of all time. Okay, when, if, if they came up to you and I was like, hey, Aaron Rodgers, really want you to show me how to throw a football. Okay, and so I, I get the hike, I go back, and I throw the football, and he was just like, dude, you throw great. I don't even need to say anything. That is a powerful compliment on how to throw a football. If any of those guys say, wow, you really throw a football well, I'd be like, oh, cool. Like, that's a great compliment, okay? Um, if, some, if some of you in this room say it to me, I'm going to be like, oh, okay? <laughs> so it's a powerful compliment, all right? And then how it's said, okay? The most powerful form of a compliment is sometimes um, in, 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 in the form of nothing being said at all. And nothing being said at all. You think about a job, okay? The first time you come to a job, you start having these uh, reviews, and they sit down with your list. Hey, you need to improve here. You need to improve here. Hopefully, the longer you're there, it's still good to have reviews and get feedback. But sometimes isn't it nice when the boss kind of just like backs off a little bit, and just you're just doing your job, and they, they know you're doing a good job, and they don't even need to say anything at all to say. It's like it's, it's, it's in what's not said that's like, wow. I mean, that's kind of a compliment that they don't need to be hovering over me anymore. And wow, that's a, thank you. That's like a compliment. Here we see both of those things. How it said, Paul just says, listen, in verse 8, he goes, we don't even need to say anything because you guys are doing an amazing job. Wow. Paul is one of those great, amazing, it would be like if we were going to have like who's the greatest church planner of all time, Paul would be in that discussion. He would have to be. And you sit there and you go, man, if, if he says that, then it must be true and they must be doing something right. But you see, Paul wrote a majority of the church letters in the New Testament, and that wasn't always his tone. It's not like Paul was just a nice dude, and he was like willing to overlook things and be like, oh, this, this church, you guys are doing great, even though you're not. It's not how we operated. And so I just want to give a couple examples to show how important this, 
this passage is. He was not afraid to speak truth. Paul was not afraid to speak truth. So you see that example in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 4. And I just want to read these. But he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Remember, Paul's writing this from Corinth. Okay, so he's, he's there observing what's going on. And he writes this letter to them saying these words. I could not even address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, um, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul. Um, another will say, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely being human? Later, he'll go on to say in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2, he say, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then another letter they wrote to Galatians, Galatians 1, 6 says, I am astonished. That's a strong word. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Like Paul wasn't afraid to call churches out when they weren't doing things well. You see it all through the New Testament. He's writing these letters out of a heart of passion because Paul was passionate about the church and he was passionate about the purity of the church. He wanted to protect it. And one of his life missions is whenever I leave this earth, I leave Christ's church in a better place than when I um, was here. It's like, I want to leave and have Christ church as a pure, beautiful picture. And so if Paul is sitting here going, man, you at Thessalonica are doing an awesome job, and he's paying them a compliment, I think it's good for us to say, okay, what was this church doing? And take some notes about what exactly was happening with the church of Thessalonica. So today we're just going to take a quick look at what is a healthy church. Okay, what does a healthy church look like? And we're going to just walk through this. Um, and we're going to read verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So it's just like a greeting of any other letter. And then right, he jumps right into verse 2. And here we see our first sign of a healthy church is a salvation central church. So let's just look at verses 2 and 3 here. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And I'll stop there. You see, the first thing that Paul says, he's like looking back, he's like, I want to remind you of something. Well, what is he reminding them of? If you turn back with me to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, remember I said uh, this is Paul looking back on his first missionary journey, and here we see unfolding before us Paul's first time being with the church at Thessalonica. And you see here in verse 1, if you turn there, Acts chapter 17, Paul's remembering back. It's like taking those pictures and saying, remember when we went on that trip? Here, here is what he is remembering. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and I just butchered those, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have come here also, um, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So this is what he's looking back to to say, here's what went down. So Paul, as was his custom, he would go into a town, he would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he would set up shop there, and he would begin to preach the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's all about. This is what I want to teach you. And it seems that he was there either two or three weeks. That's it. Think about this. Paul was there for two or three weeks. It says he was there for three Sabbaths. That's it. Because as people started to come to Christ, the city went into an uproar. There's about 70,000 people in Thessalonica at this time. 70,000 people. In three weeks, the whole city is raised into an uproar. A mob is formed because these rabble-rousers, these people, isn't it an interesting term there? It says, these men who have changed the world are here doing it now. What a compliment. What an amazing compliment. These men who have changed the world are here now changing the world. We need to stop them. And so you see that Paul and everyone on his uh, team that's there has to flee. And so we see Paul coming back to salvation. You see, salvation for the Christian. Okay, if you're sitting here as a child of God, salvation has to be the starting point, and then it has to remain the central point of who you are. Okay, it has to be the starting point. I love hearing Alexander share this morning about his salvation testimony. Because for him, like, there's nothing before that. That's his starting point. Like, he was born, okay? Emily gave him birth, okay? And he was a little baby. But his starting point as a child of God is salvation. And then I love how he kept going back to that. Like, God, he didn't take it seriously at first. But there was something amazing that, like, when salvation and God became back central to his life is when God started to grow him and mature him and make him the man of God that he wants him to be. Paul here says, listen, I just want to write back and say, you guys are doing an awesome job at remembering and keeping salvation central to everything you're doing. You see it in verses three and four there. It just explains that your steadfastness, your hope, everything is flowing out of the fact that God has done an amazing salvation work in their lives. Paul pleads for salvation to remain central. I saw this picture um, from the flooding. This is from a, a guy in North Carolina uh, that, you know, flash flooding. Some of you experienced flash flooding even the last couple of days, okay? Um, we saw some pictures, even people in our church, um, your backyards kind of looked like this, okay? Uh, if you could just replace the yield word there and just put salvation, okay? Um, in a flash flood, you literally just grab onto whatever is around you and you cling to it, okay? You cling to it, you hold to it. And in those verses that Paul just like shared with the Corinthian church, as he's saying, hold fast to the word that I preach to you. It's of first importance. Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15. He goes through this whole passage where he's like, hold fast to the faith that I have for you. 
Um, for I delivered you the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and then he raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Those some have fallen asleep. Those some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And then the next verse, last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. So Paul's saying, listen, I saw Jesus, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. Just keep these verses here, holding fast. You see that guy holding on to that sign? Wouldn't that be any of us if we were in one of those storms? You just grab on to and not let go. Cling to, hold fast to whatever is around you. This is what Paul is saying is, man, you guys are doing a great job at keeping salvation as like what you are anchored to, what you are holding on to, what is of most importance. See, there's a lot of churches around, isn't there? You just drive around. Isn't it amazing how many churches we have? There's churches everywhere. And there's a lot of people even who claim the name of Christ. But here's what's happened, okay? Instead of clinging to salvation, they've replaced that yield sign, that salvation holding onto with a lot of different things that they're, they're holding tightly. It could be political causes, okay? I don't know if you guys know, but there's an election Tuesday, um, okay? Um, I know you probably haven't even seen it on TV or anything, but there's an election Tuesday. A lot of churches become political organizations, Okay? Political causes become what they hold tight to. Moral causes, different things that a church believes um, should, they should take a moral stance on. That becomes first priority in what they hold fast to. Community causes, good things that are happening in the community. A lot of churches are known for just being great community activists. Theological causes, okay? This is why we have denominational breaks. It's because at different points in history, different churches have said, you know what? We're going to cling to this theological thought that, that our church has, and we're going to separate from everyone else. Now, real, real, real quick clarifier. These are not bad things. Not all these things are bad things, but they aren't the best thing, okay? Salvation has to be central. It has to be the thing that we build everything off of. So you see, there's, there's a thing that happens. When you make salvation, you cling to something else other than salvation, okay? When the waters rise, okay, like, there's a flood that comes and you're holding on, you will grab whatever is closest to you to hold on to. So if there's other causes or other things that decentralize or take um, salvation out of what you're really holding on to, you're left holding on to something that won't be able to stand against whatever's coming. It's hopeless. When you, I mean, Don hit on this beautifully last week when it came to politics and Israel looking to Saul for their um, political, uh, it's like save us, Saul. And what happened time again, time after time after time, Saul failed them. Saul failed them. So the, unfortunately, there's many churches and many people who would consider themselves Christian who cling, um, instead of clinging to the Savior, they cling to a certain cause. And it becomes priority to them. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Like, cling to salvation and everything else falls into place. Everything else will fall into place. You see, when the gospel comes into a person's life and true repentance occurs, and there's true submission to Christ, listen to this, it's too powerful not to be central. There's a lot of people out there that claim Christ, they have a relationship with Christ, but you look at their life, and you don't see salvation anywhere on display. You don't see the fruits of salvation. 
You don't see them living out their faith. <coughs> Salvation is too powerful for that. It's not possible. It's not possible. So I just want to give a practice. You're like, that's a weird thought. How do you keep salvation central in your life? So uh, it was really cool. Two weeks ago, God kind of gave me this really neat experience. I was, I was meeting someone up at the uh, Sunflower Cafe for breakfast. Ever been there? Awesome breakfast, okay? It's up towards Pottsgrove, near Pottsgrove High School. I'm on, I'm on my way there. I have to kill some time because the person um, that I'm meeting is uh, shooting me a text saying I'll be a little late. So I decided to take a little detour to North Valley Road, 1224 North Valley Road. It's where I was raised. Spent the first 14 years of my life there. And, uh, you know, it's fun just for nostalgic purposes to uh, go back and just, like, visit where you grew up. Sometimes it's very, like, it's not a great experience because you have bad memories. And other times it's, like, a mixed experience. Well, this was just, I decided, you know what? I'm going to go back there. I'm just going to sit there for a minute and praise the Lord that God protected me, uh, raised me, and grew me, and that I had parents who shared salvation with me. And I could stay, I, I parked across the street, um, I made sure nobody was around so they didn't think I was some like weird guy just parking. And uh, I parked across the street from the sidewalk where when I was five years old, my mom led me to the Lord. And I just stood there and I just spent some time praying, saying, Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation. It's such, a, it's such an amazing gift that I take for granted all the time. And I just sat there and I prayed for a few minutes. I go to breakfast. I'm sitting down with uh, Brian Spears, who was here a few weeks ago to share evangelism. We have some things we want to talk through, um, just get an update on, on where he's at. And the first thing he says to me is he goes, hey, can I just like shoot straight before we get into anything? I just realized like I've never heard your salvation story and I want to hear it right now. I think that's the most important thing. I was like, wow, you're not going to believe this, but I just literally five minutes ago went back to the spot where God saved me from my sins and I shared that story. But you know what was the coolest thing is that like how do we keep salvation central is we need to be able to talk how many times do we ask that question? Like, hey, share your salvation story with me. Like, how did Christ save you? I want to give us that challenge, okay? That we start to put this into our language as Christians. Like, if salvation is central to who we are, we better be asking each other about what salvation looks like in our life. When, when did Christ save you? When did that happen? What does that look like for your life? And how many times do we like, what are the, the top questions that we ask? Like, so what do you do for a living? How many kids you got? You know, we're, we're, we're like, do you like the Eagles? You know, like we, we ask all these different questions, but as Christians, if we're going to be salvation central and keep it before us, and as a church have it be central, what if we just start asking each other that question? So that's the challenge for this week. Ask someone that you come in contact with, another brother and sister in this church, just like, yo, let's, let's start there. I don't think I've ever heard your salvation story. Again, it's that whole idea that we're holding on to salvation. It's central to who we are. Next one we see, um, a healthy church is surrendered to Christ's likeness. And we see this in verse 6 and verse 9. And it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So there's two ways, okay, that he lays it out. And then in verse 9, you see that he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. You see here this church in Thessalonica, the reason that Paul is able to just straight up compliment them is because they're surrendered to Christ's likeness. You know, weak churches are weak because Christians lack the strength to surrender to Christ. So the reason why a lot of churches are anemic is because the people in the church are just not willing to surrender, to do the hard work of surrendering to Christ. That word there, imitators, 
means to mimic. Remember the game Copycat? Like where you just try to copy the other person? Kids love to play this game. And then you have to try to like, you're playing that game, you have to try to flip it so that like you're now copying them. Okay, that whole copycat just saying the word after someone else. This is exactly the word there saying, Paul's like, listen, you're following me and you're following Christ. You're mimicking what we do as we live out our faith. It says they turned away from idols. And you say, why is this, why is this important that you're surrendered to Christ's likeness? It's what makes the church powerful. It's what unifies the church. It's what unifies the church. So A.W. Tozer used this example. He says, if I have 100 pianos and want to tune them, if I go around and tune them to each other, I've got a mess. However, if I take one tuning fork, they'll be tuned to each other. What a beautiful picture. Like if we're all striving to surrender to Christ-likeness together, and we're all coming in tune with the one tuning fork, Christ, think about what that does when you have... uh, some kind of like disagreement with someone in the church family or someone annoys you. Like at the end of the day, we all have to be able to look at each other and be like, hey, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all surrendered to Christ. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean everything's just gonna be like hunky-dory. Doesn't mean you're gonna be best friends with everybody in this room. That's okay. However, the powerful church is unified because everyone is striving together to be surrendered to Christ. Like I said, this town was 70,000 people. That's something like it was 70,000 people, and just a few came to Christ, but the town was turned upside down. How was that? Because they were all of one accord. They were all passionate about pursuing Christ, following Christ. You see, it says there that you receive the word in affliction. Now, a lot of times we think, uh, you know, I'm struggling, okay? And we're all, we all have struggles, right? Anybody that doesn't have a struggle in here, like, let me know the secret recipe, okay? We all struggle, and it's in the struggle that you see that their faith, you know, there's no faith without struggle. Think about that for a second. There is no faith without struggle. And here in this beautiful picture, we see a church that receives the word and is instantly under cultural attack for who they are. At that moment, families have to decide, are we going to be culturally different? At that moment, people have to decide, am I really going to give up my way of life and be looked at as an outcast because I'm following Christ? Now, by the grace of God, we don't experience persecution in the same way that they did. However, we do face all kinds of struggle. The struggle looks different. It's not persecution, but man, if you're really living for Christ and your neighbors know that you're living out loud for Christ, you are going to be looked at as weird. It's just the bottom line. If you're not looked at as weird, something's wrong, okay? Like if your actions, like if you're full of, just practical example, if you walk around full of joy in this world, you are weird, okay? It's the bottom line. Like think about it. We have some Christians in the church that walk around with joy and we look at them and be like, why is that person always happy, okay? Um, and we see, like, like, that is a beautiful opportunity to say, man, there's struggles in here, but we are striving after Christ. Healthy churches are made up of Christians who are struggling, but still, even in the struggle, they're striving after Christ. It's messy. We're all flawed, but we're surrendering to Christ's example. But here's the amazing thing that happens, okay? This church, Paul's saying, you guys are all surrendering to Christ, and then look what happens. Here's the result of this. It's hard work. It's messy. But go down to verse 7. Look at what happens. The third mark of a healthy church is it sets a good example for the world. Verse 7, it says, so, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, 
And then there's that compliment, so that we need not say anything. Paul gives two specifics. Like, just, wouldn't it be cool to, like, like the church that you were there, Thessalonica, you look around, you get read this letter, and you just look at each other and go, wow, that's amazing. Paul is hearing about what God is doing here, way over here. Like, Paul's writing from far away, and he's saying, like, we're hearing about what God's doing in your church, like, where we are. Man, I want to be a part of a church like that. In a lot of ways, God is using us, but we can always improve. Like, what if people from everywhere are saying, man, that, that church, UPCC, it's not that they have good coffee, or that they have a good band, or that Pastor John's really, really nice, or you're there, they really greet you nice when you come in the door. No, like, they're making a difference for the gospel around the world, and that becomes the reputation and testimony of our church. So there's two ways that this happened. Two ways that this happened. If you look at verse 7, that word example, so that you became an example. That word there is the word pattern. Paul, when he's talking to Timothy in another part, he says, be an example to the believers. So when I think of the word pattern, here's what I think of. Growing up, going down the stairs, 1224 North Valley Road, my mom had this big quilt. I don't know where we got it. I don't know what it was from, um, but it was there my whole life. And I remember, because I got sent to the steps a lot, that I would sit on the steps and look at the quilt. And I would just stare and be like, wow, that's like a really cool pattern. So when I think of a pattern, I think of a quilt. So I asked uh, Susan Landis, I was like, can I borrow a quilt? So she takes me into her house and she has like quilt after quilt after quilt laid out. I'm like, sorry, it wasn't supposed to be this big of a project, okay? But if you know, she's an amazing seamstress and she loves to sew. And so she gave me this, this quilt here as an example. Now, I don't know how many of you sew or do the whole seamstress thing. I don't, okay? I know a lot of that surprises a lot of you. Um, it's not like one of my skills. However, like I can still appreciate an amazing piece of like art or work that goes into something like this. And so as a young kid, I would look at that quilt and be like, wow, whoever did that, and I still don't know who did it. I should probably ask my mom. That is an amazing pattern and like how much work was put into that. So I asked Susan, I was like, what's, like, what's the whole process of doing something like this and putting together a quilt. And she says, well, first, you have to choose your pattern, right? The design that you want to go with. And then I didn't realize that, like, and some of you who know this, just bear with me, okay? Like, that this is made up of little two-by-two two sections. The whole quilt, two-by-two, two-by-two, two-by-two. The whole thing to make up this. And she goes, you make mistakes along the way, and sometimes you have to start over with that patch, and you have to put it together. And she showed me um, some other quilts that she has. She goes, you can see this little mistake here. I'm like, I don't see it. But she's like, <laughs> Sometimes there's mistakes along the way, and some of them you, like, you can forgive and go back and fix it, and others you just can't. And so as you do this, she goes, you just begin, and, and you hope the design comes to life. I was like, well, how many hours does something like this take you? And she's like, I can't even count. I'm like, no, I need a number for my sermon illustration. <laughs> and she's like, no, like, you don't understand. It's, it's countless, countless hours of doing this. She goes, I, I lose track. I couldn't even count how many hours something like this takes. And then she had another big quilt, and then she's made up many other quilts. It's just an amazing thing that happens when something like this comes to life, the amount of work. So that, that word there that Paul uses is so powerful. He goes, the reason that your church reputation is so big is that you have set forth a pattern, a biblical example, and people are noticing what that looks like. You know, if we sit here as believers, every person in the world actually that's born chooses a pattern for their life, what they're going to identify with, who they're going to be. And they, and they set out on a course 
to create the picture of their life, the tapestry that will be the life of Dave, Brian, Sarah, anybody, okay? But isn't it amazing the difference between a piece of art like this or a quilt is that at some point when we choose our pattern, God comes in out of nowhere and he says, no, 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 I have a new pattern for you. I have a new, amazing, beautiful pattern that I'm going to set forth for you. And isn't it amazing, like, that begins that process of creating the piece that God has for us. Now, you look at, you look at this, this piece of work, okay? Like, Susan was just like, this is hard work. Like, our lives, God chooses us, and he sets the pattern for our life. But how many times do we try to take the needle and take over for him and say, I got a better idea. Like, I know what this can look like, and let me just go do my own thing. But at the end of the day... We have a loving Father, okay, an amazing God, who is right there with the power of the Holy Spirit saying, no, 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 let me work with you here. You're going off in a direction you shouldn't. I have the perfect, beautiful pattern set forth for your life. It's in my word. Follow it. You follow it, and it'll be a beautiful thing to see what God does to your life. And so you see, he uses that word pattern all throughout the New Testament. Oh, I got to do this nice, she said. I'm going to get her in trouble. Brian, look, nice fold. Lay out, clean, nobody touch it, okay? Um, if you spent that many hours on something, you'd be like particular too. It was like in a plastic bag. I'm like, it's not leaving my car, okay? But it's a beautiful piece of work. So think about that pattern for a second. It's a long process, isn't it? You become a child of God. It's a long process to becoming like God designed us to be. It's hard work. It is messy. But God faithfully, hour after hour, through his love and through the power of his spirit, puts us together as he would have us, the design that he's created us to be. And here's the cool part at the end. It's not so that we can be like, look at us. Look at what God's done. Look at the design that he's created. And look, look what I can now do. It's so that when people see what we've created to be, they look and they see, instantly see a loving savior. Their, their, their affection and their, their, their drive, they're like, wow, that is amazing work that God has done, not that Brian's done. But how many times do I hold up the quilt of my life and be like, yeah, look what, look what God's doing. We still put God in there, so it's like, look what God's doing, but we're really saying, look what Brian's done. And here's one thing that I just want to encourage with. You don't have to be complete to make a difference. A lot of us are like, you don't understand. I can't be a good testimony for the Lord. I can't live out loud for Jesus because I'm not complete yet. Like, we're waiting to be the perfect quilt that others see and look into our lives and say, oh, yeah, they're like Jesus. But man, isn't it in the work and the meticulous work that God's doing and the changes that are happening and as it's being formed, that's when people notice Christ. They say, wow, what are you doing over there? Like, I'm noticing your anger is different. I'm noticing the way you're loving your children is different. I'm noticing the older you get, you have just like a greater, greater joy. That is the amazing moments when we say yes. Like God is working. He's, he's, it's, it's tedious sometimes. Sometimes we, there's mistakes. I make mistakes all the time and God has to say, hey, here's what you need to do to fix this. But you don't have to be perfect to make a difference for Christ. And this church, was, it wasn't perfect, but it was living in a pattern where people saw it and said, wow, God's doing something there. I want to be a part of that. And people were coming to know Christ. So they were living out loud. The second dimension is, and there in verse 8, it says they sounded forth. That translation literally means to echo, echo, echo. Okay, they literally echoed the word of the Lord. So there was the action part, okay, where they were mimicking Christ, and then they were also um, living it out loud, and people could see it in their lives. But then the second thing is it came verbally out of their mouth. They had a good testimony. See, a good testimony has both words and actions. It's not one or the other. 
In my role at church, I have many opportunities to sit down with couples um, or people that are going to get married, and I, I have to share truth with them. And every once in a while, I share truth. We get in the car, and Kristen goes, that was really good what you shared. You should try living that. Like, no, but like, seriously, because why is she saying that to me? She's saying for you to be an effective testimony and to be worth someone following, this young couple, they're coming to us for marriage advice, for them to really follow you, it better be more than your words. It's got to be action too. And so you see this testimony of this church was both word and action being lived out loud. You're strategically placed. This, this church was strategically placed on the Ignatian Highway, which would be like the equivalent of I-95. Like, if you just had I-95, it runs the whole East Coast. They were just in a spot that got a lot of traffic. God strategically placed them to make a difference for the whole region, the whole known world there. Every one of us is strategically placed. Don't think you're not strategically placed. God has put our church here, and God's put you as a part of the church strategically placed with where you're at. So fourth and final, and this one's short. Number four, a healthy church stays focused and is staying focused on Christ's return. This was one of the weirdest things to me as a kid. Like preachers would get up and be like, you just gotta, you know, you gotta be living, waiting for Christ's return. So like as a kid, I'm sitting there going like, like what does that actually mean? Do I just kind of sit here and look up and like, because I wanted to live life. Like I'm like, no, I don't want Christ to come back yet. I don't wait till I'm old. You know, that's what you say when you're a kid. I, want, I got a lot to live for. Um, and I want to do all these things. That's not what that means. It says there that Paul ends in verse 10. He comes back to the gospel. And he says, To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who deliver us, delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, that word there that's given, this is not an idle waiting. The word translates being prepared or always preparing. Always preparing. So if you were going to put that, change that fourth one, it would be staying focused and always preparing for Christ's return. If you were here uh, this morning um, as a Christian, every day is a day of preparation. We're called to be preparing at all times for Christ's return. There's no like past. It's not days you take off and say, you know, this today, this week, I'm just going to kind of take some time off from preparing. We're always called to prepare. So in closing, uh, much of our, our job, for those of us that come and speak, um, a lot of times I like to think of, man, if I can just come up with something creative and new, then it's a good message. That's my pride. Today is simply a reminder day. That's what we're actually called to faithfully do as we preach the word. It's just a, a steady reminder of what God's called us to as believers. And healthy churches are not healthy because they have a healthy pastor, healthy leaders. They're healthy because they have healthy members who are striving after these four things that we talked about today. They're the most basic. There's a lot of amazing churches out there who all have different emphasis. That's the beauty of how God has created his church. However, he does give us clear examples in scripture of what a healthy church looks like. And the church at Thessalonica is one that we can say, wow, thank you, Lord, for their example of faith and how they lived out what it was like to be a church. Those four characteristics make a healthy church and they also make a healthy church member. So remember those and remember the challenge this week. To be salvation central, ask someone who claims Christ to say, hey, let's just share our salvation testimonies together. Let's do that this week, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the time in your word this morning. We thank you for the example of the Thessalonian church, God. There was a real church with real people who would have real issues, who had real challenges, God. But they're also a church that was faithful, and they were an example for us even all this time later 
of what it looks like to be a healthy church and a healthy church member. God, thank you for the church family that you've gathered here. Thank you for our, our, the, just the, the ways that you're working grace out in our lives, God. It's messy. Help us to just look at one another as just, just people surrendered to Christ, not in a judgmental way, but we're all working through things, God. And so we pray that your power would go forth from this place, even starting today, God. May we not just be a Sunday church, but may we be a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday church as well. In your name, amen.